Hello, this is Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee. We're going to talk today about a great article that we had recently by Blake Smith on Yan Fu, an interesting Chinese intellectual, and his view of the true mission of liberalism. So, of course, I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Ash Milton. Hey, guys. Nice to be here again. I'm pretty excited for this one. This piece is definitely a unique one. I think there's parallels in the West, particularly American pragmatism was something I had discussions about afterwards with readers. But I think the Chinese lens on this is obviously going to be unique, especially in the era we're talking about here, still in the century of humiliation, so-called, when he's writing. Let's introduce this thing. Basically, Blake wrote this article exploring this guy, Yan Fu, who lived in the late 19th century, early 20th century in China. In China at that time, we're talking about the end of the Qing dynasty. He sees that things are decayed, things are overly stagnated. They're, it's all locked up in this, in this gridlock. No one's able to do anything. There's too much censorship. Things are too established and not flexible enough. They're not dynamic. So he's seeing this, he's seeing this decay. They're kind of, you know, they've got, they're going through the opium wars. They're going through their humiliations with uh, various colonial enterprises with Japan and, and Britain. So so they're in a really bad state at that time. And he's he's kind of embarking on this quest of the quest for good governance, as he describes it actually in a poem that is quoted in the article. So it, it's actually, it's sort of similar to how we're seeing the time that we're in right now. We're sort of at this end of this kind of, you know, well past the golden age of the empire where we're starting to move into maybe this uh, century of humiliations, uh, maybe maybe some of this opium decay kind of thing going on where everyone's sort of on drugs or watching Netflix or just kind of wasting their life away because they don't know what else to do with their lives because they're not really able to do anything. We have our own opium war now. <laughs> yes, right. And, and of course, fentanyl uh, is is very much related to this. Anyway, so so there's sort of it's an interesting parallel between that time and our own time. And so Yan Fu is this interesting character to study because he's this Chinese intellectual really trying to grapple with that situation. So what he's doing at the time is he went to Britain to study what had made Britain so powerful and great that it was able to humiliate China at this time. And, you know, he wants to learn from them, take their lessons and incorporate them into a renewed Chinese order. Again, this is very similar to like, well, maybe we should be approaching China like this. They've got some things going on for them, obviously, right now. Um, It hasn't gotten to the point of them humiliating us, but hopefully it doesn't. But, you know, we'll see. Context wise here, Yan is not the only one trying to do this. Obviously, there have been a bunch of people who are thinking in terms of how can we appropriate Western technology, maybe some aspects of Western managerialism or leadership, but without changing, in essence, the Chinese mode of civilization. And so this idea of Western technique and Chinese essence is very popular. Yan rejects this, interestingly, and this is what makes him kind of a radical thinker in this vein. It's both that he has a an understanding of liberalism, which kind of gets the core of what the project actually was trying to do. Obviously, he's writing at kind of the tail end of its high period. But in addition to that, he looks at China itself, and he sees 
China as not actually just being in a situation where you can sort of unthinkingly keep the core and just kind of do a little marketing update uh, of the thing. No, an actual systemic update is necessary, a new iteration of Chinese civilization. He is a Confucian scholar, and I would say uh, a kind of a Taoist mindset. He believes that it is useful to return and renew one's understanding of the Chinese classics, but he does not believe that the mode of Chinese civilization under which he lives can continue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and like you're saying, like this is not unique to him. This is not unique to China. Obviously, the the Japanese had undergone the Meiji Restoration, I think around the beginning of Yan Fu's life, 1870s, I think. Obviously, the Meiji Restoration is is... You've got all these Japanese guys going to Germany, um, otherwise in in Europe, learning a lot about all these European ideas, and they know that they have to modernize. This is right when they're starting starting to open up after their feudal period. They have to modernize, so they're taking all these modern ideas, they're taking these modern technologies, and they're trying to like reboot Japan to to fit in the modern world, and and that involves some taking these ideas and some reinterpreting them. So it's very interesting how these different societies are handling that problem. China is facing obviously a similar problem, though in a in a rougher position with with kind of the opium wars, with with more uh, successful colonialism against them and so on. Yeah, so Yan Fu goes to Britain. He's studying basically Western thought, trying to figure out what it is that makes the West great. Yeah, particularly uh, John, John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith are... Uh, kind of loom large in his thinking. Right. So he settles on these these British liberal thinkers. And so he's he comes back to to China and he tries to reach the government. He tries to train students. He tries to get involved in these modernization processes that he knows has to be occurring. There's some support from the government. But basically he's he's eventually outmaneuvered. The thing doesn't go anywhere. The students don't turn out very impressive. So he gets pretty demoralized and he, he basically turns to just translating these works from the Western canon into Chinese and and putting his own kind of interpretive spin on them through the Confucian and, and as Ash is saying, maybe a bit of the Taoist interpretive lens. So the big ones that he's translating and that are especially the focus of this article that Blake wrote is John Stuart Mill on liberty. So this was an essay which Mill wrote in the 1850s on the kind of modes of life that liberalism was trying to develop in the British and Western society. Yeah. And, and so in the West, we're used to thinking of, liber- of liberalism and, and mill and that kind of work as being this, you know, it's almost anti-statist. It's got an almost anarchistic ten- tinge to it where it's you're, you've got these individuals and you're trying to free these individuals from the collective, you know, the oppressive collective is, is stopping these individuals from reaching their own independent teleologies that have nothing to do with each other. And actually, you know, the only thing that society should be doing is mediating between them, making sure they're not stepping on each other's toes, making sure they're able to have these sort of trade opportunities. But there's no overall teleology to the thing. There's no overall collective that has its own value. There's no collective destiny. It's just, you know, society is a bunch of 
uh, or in the words of Thatcher, you know, neoliberal much later, there is no society, there's only individuals, right? That this is the view that we sort of associate with liberalism. But Yan Fu takes a different view of liberalism. He says, well, look, these guys were very strong collectively as a collective nation. They were extremely strong. They built an extremely strong society. They took over half the world. Maybe their ideas had something to do with it. And maybe even liberalism had something to do with it. And in particular, his thesis is basically that liberalism, by unleashing these individuals, these heroic individuals from the constraints of sort of small-minded censors and stupid rules and so on, they're able to do these great works, maybe of conquest and imperialism or otherwise works of science, works of industry, etc., that actually go and feed back into the collective strength. So he sort of grounds the thing actually ultimately in the collective strength. He says, we are interested in building a strong society, but you can't have a strong society when these petty censors are able to have veto power over the the heroic individuals that, that make society go forward. Also the case that he thinks, along with liberalism more broadly, that Perhaps not all, but at least a great number of the individuals in society can actually become that sort of person, that sort of citizen, right? He sees liberalism in his reading of Mill as kind of a way of creating individuals or a way of creating citizens. So the free individual who is engaged in discourse and in democratic political conflict is not a natural state of being. He does see it. And liberalism itself saw it at that time as a mode of life you had to introduce into the population. Uh, you had to shape a population that was capable of living in this way. But in doing that, you know, I mentioned earlier that Jan seems to have something like a Taoist mindset. The, the relevant quote here, I'm just going to read it, asks kind of in a rhetorical sense whether a society where censors and kind of corrupt custom holding back people's free development of their talents is any way for society, quote, to make itself fit for the struggle of survival, for a person to pursue the true way by which people should live. And so this idea that actually by disrupting custom, you return to kind of a truer way of nature. I mean, this is a, it's a very Taoist way of thinking, but it's also something completely alien, I think, to Western liberalism, particularly, I'd say, after the war, and especially, you know, after the neoliberal period, I think this is completely outside of the box for ideological neoliberalism. But the idea that actually you're introducing a society that is in some sense better able to live in accordance with some kind of higher way that should be unfolding in human development this is an idea that was very much alive in the 19th century presentation of liberalism. Just that note about, you know, he sees it as ultimately serving this struggle for collective survival, right? Like that you've got this nation and you're struggling for collective survival. It's, it's very popular, obviously, at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. About the point on the social engineering aspect of liberalism, like people criticize liberalism nowadays. They say, well, like, oh, liberalism is just trying to mediate between these different things. It, it claims not to have any sort of substantive program of its own about, you know, what it thinks is good and how individuals should live and so on. But at least through the eyes of Yan Fu and 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 probably in in the implicitly in the thoughts of the original liberals at that time, 
liberalism actually was this positive program of social engineering. We are going, we are going to create this individual, this idea of the individual, this certain type of human, this way of being that we think is better, right? So you're going to have this heroic individual, this person able to kind of exist, to have their own teleology and to bring other people along in that teleology through rhetoric, persuasion, you know, politics, through building things, uh, industrially companies, et cetera. Um, so th- that, that's their, their vision of what human life is supposed to be about. I think what's interesting here is Jan and Mill in his reading, they see this is like not necessarily the, the natural state of being for, for humans, certainly not under what has been maybe a repressive system. But once you unleash that, those energies and start to sort of force people into that mode of being, they start to develop the skill for it. This is the idea. It's almost a training program for the population. You're trying to train people to be these heroic individuals. And the interesting thing is where this kind of loops back around to the strength of the state and the strength of the collective is they think that only such individuals can actually rule. And so if you think about what would be required for you know an individual who rules, it's sort of this aristocratic mindset of you know d- communing kind of directly with with nature with no particular social teleology above them but only below them they kind of situate themselves with respect to the cosmos and with respect to society in this independent commanding position and then they you know pursue in a heroic way whatever whatever ends it is they decide are the right ends and so if you think about any society that it has government needs to have at least some people like that right because someone has to sit at the top and make those decisions where they are actually sort of terraforming the social system under themselves and operating directly on on sort of the natural substrate of of human life in the cosmos and, and so that's that's an interesting read of this of this project of liberalism as viewed by by Jan and 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 Mill as this project of kind of inculcating these these sort of true aristocratic values in the population so that you have a supply of people who think like that who can then turn around and then rule society it's it's a liberalism that is an anti-decadent movement i think that's something that we've lost to a great extent in our not just how we view liberalism but also even how we view the history of it but this was alive in british liberalism it was alive in french liberalism the liberalism of the jacobins and of the revolution where it viewed itself as this kind of return to health and mobilization of the french population it viewed itself as patriotic in a sense and it viewed the aristocrats as sources of decay and decadence in the society now today we view kind of this anti-decadent mentality as sort of associated right with with the right with reaction a, con- a conservative mentality but liberalism and I-, I would say a lot of these ideological currents you get out of modernity you know pro- progressivism and marxism have elements of this as well are anti-decadent movements in their own lens when they're first conceived and i i think that what jan's reading does do is preclude a kind of anti-social understanding of society right so you do get this tendency among some thinkers in that period rousseau is probably one of them where social institutions are as such considered constraints 
There is the society that we live in, but actually it's social control all the way down. You know, this is maybe the anarchistic mentality, let's call it, within parts of liberalism. But Jan's reading is Confucian. He has this great line where he says, the most durable and flawless political theory is found in the works of Confucius, the four books and the five classics are like abundant minds. But then, nevertheless, he says, we have to use new machines to open them up. You know, implicitly in the modern era, we need new machines to open them up. And this is a very interesting frame because he does see there being this inheritance, right? You can look at previous civilizations the way Confucius himself did and figure out why those things worked. You have stable social forms, social hierarchies, modes of life and production and ritual that exist in the society. But what he is criticizing is a stagnation of those things. When these things arise, right, they usually serve some kind of function. They have a health to them. They're doing something. But what happens is over time, there's an ossification. And the distinction he's making here is not one of, you know, oh, corrupt norms of society. We just have to be true to ourselves. But it's actually that the mores and institutions of the society need to create human beings who are realized, right, according to this idea of like a, a true path, a the dynamic of the society that should be unfolding naturally. I mean, you know, you can kind of get into a lot of questions here about like, is it well ordered? Is it disordered? And so on. But fundamentally, right, there's the sense that there is a kind of natural unfolding or development happening in the society. There is an ebb and a flow. It's a dynamic state in which we nevertheless have these intelligible things. But what you cannot tolerate is allowing those things to become stagnant and ossified because then you get the century of humiliation. Yeah, and and so this I found this to be a very interesting view of liberalism. It actually I think it changed my my understanding of some things. If you can ground the whole project of freedom and individuality and the heroic individual and the and freeing those heroic individuals from small-minded censorship, if you can ground that in some kind of collectivity and and the a fundamentally social perspective, that gets you out of so many of the problems that we've had with liberalism in the 20th century. Like, I think there must have been this turn sometime in the 20th century. Maybe it was just the work of, you know, the Mont Pelerin Society and, and you know, they did some good work, but but the, the whole kind of like genesis of the neoliberal interpretation and and sort of this hyper capitalism, this uh, hedonism, anti-social turn in the understanding of liberalism, th- that somehow went wrong in the 20th century. Where you had these these uh, thinkers, I guess, who sort of viewed themselves as as alienated from society, and they just kind of wanted to not have any social duty, but but instead just kind of free themselves from any sort of chains of control that held them back from pursuing their own sort of weird neurotic ends. And that mindset reinterpreting liberalism produces this kind of hedonistic antisocial orientation that that unfortunately has come to characterize a lot of what people mean by liberalism today. But going back, you know, we get this idea of liberalism as a collective orientation, as a strategy for producing the strong individuals that you need to have a strong collective. That's very interesting. 
and it becomes something that can then be incorporated into the rest of sort of the social paradigm that we've been trying to build up right it's it's we're trying to understand things you know fundamentally from this premise that look we are living in a society we are living together we are inextricable from each other we have these relationships we have ways of thinking we have ways of talking even down to the language we use is inherently a social thing right we don't produce it ourselves we get it from each other and and so we're we're sort of inextricable from this collective you can't have a social paradigm and a political paradigm that doesn't put that collective at the center and so you know we're trying to kind of rebuild our understanding of the world around that insight and now you know, here's a way to kind of reground liberalism in that, which is something I've, I've known that this is a good idea for a long time, right? Like, obviously, the ideas of natural law, of of there being some sense of rights of the individual, of the, the power of these heroic individuals and so on, of being freed from pointless censorship and so on, like, these are obviously good ideas. Something that I've been wanting to see for a long time is how do we ground those in the collective strength that they can go, they can help to produce. And so I think, I think this article was exciting for me because it actually did that. I'd like to kind of dig deeper and go further. How can we understand what this interpretation of liberalism is doing? How many problems can it solve? What, what other areas can we look at that shed light here? Reading this is interesting to me because I think Yan is writing at a period in history, like both in Chinese history, but also I think globally, where a lot of things are considered just basically stable in the society. I think that liberalism and liberals in general, obviously I'm using the word in the broad sense here, do seem to assume a kind of stability in the society that is maybe not really assumable. If you look at society today versus just 50 years ago, much less 100 or 200 years ago, it turns out that social forms are highly malleable. When I'm reading someone like Jan, I don't think Jan entirely reconciles, other than this kind of gesture at the idea of a true path or a true way. He does not really reconcile how you have all these individuals doing their individual projects kind of unleashed from censorship and corrupt custom, but those things necessarily coming out into some kind of beneficial end. Obviously, thanks to people like Adam Smith, we have ideas like the invisible hand, right? So somehow we all figure out how to do things for each other, provide value to each other, and it kind of shakes out into into this beneficial thing. I am critical as to whether we want to make that assumption. It did happen, yes, in the process of industrialization, this did kind of occur, but it was not even, you know, even that process was not this nice and neat. There was a lot of, you know, political exception and conflict that went into this. It was not just sort of voluntaristic exchange. But in terms of what Jan is describing here, right, I had this quote uh, come across my Twitter feed from William Davidson, who was this Jamaican-born British radical. He was executed in 1820. And he basically said, it is an ancient custom to resist tyranny. Would you not rather govern a nation or a country of spirited men than cowards? And when I refer to an anti-decadent movement, right, this is what we're getting at here. If you have a society of people who have a sense of personal responsibility 
And I don't mean that in the, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstrap sense, but more in the sense of you can and should achieve great things in your life and for the society. And if those people are sufficiently, you know, materially endowed and educated, that they can actually do those things, right? They're not constrained by some kind of social barrier. You now have a society that you can mobilize to achieve things that have never been seen before. I mean, this is the kind of society that took us to the moon. These are the societies that ended up accelerating the process of industrialization. We've achieved a bunch of important material advancements because of this kind of society. But the social infrastructure, the social technologies have become gutted in many ways. Sometimes there is a resurgence where we try and rebuild various kinds of social contract, but they seem to fall apart within a couple of generations. You know, we do not seem to have the timelines necessary to build things on centuries-long timescales as were achieved in previous periods. We see this sometimes happening in the Middle Ages with, with things like cathedral building. And so the question of how you unleash people in that way, but actually give them a vision that is good for society is not something that Jan has resolved. So maybe we can push it kind of in this direction. I'd like to figure out, you know, I don't think we can basically take the preferences or whatever of individuals just as a given. I think we need to ask how those preferences are formed because very clearly the process of social engineering that created the modern liberal individual also actually ended up giving people a number of positive preferences, right? And that gets fleshed out through various social control mechanisms. You know, Bernays writes about propaganda in the mid-20th century. His nephew is now running Netflix. So very clearly, right, the things that people actually decide they should do are not just some kind of state of nature thing that exists. There are things that are formed in them. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's leadership. There's a center in society somehow where people are are taking a lot of their interpretations of what they're supposed to be doing and what they should be doing from that center. And this is, again, this is coming back to this insight that kind of nukes liberalism as we understand it, where you can kind of take the rational individual as a pre-society, like a pre-social given. Actually, you can't. The rational individual is something very much created by a society and so the society needs to have its own logic. And this is, I think, where you start to get into a little bit of a contradiction in the idea of liberalism as, as just like unleashing these individuals and then kind of letting that happen. You need to have some higher logic that these individuals are submitting themselves to. And, and Yan Fu and, and Blake and Mill are, are making this point in the article that there is a higher logic that these individuals have to be subordinating themselves to. This isn't just like, oh, they're operating on individual whim or whatever. They Part of their process of development is they're learning how to consciously and deliberately subordinate themselves to some higher logic. The thing that particularly feels missing is the actual nature of that higher logic and how we think about it. Yeah. So there's, I think there's basically two ways that we can look at this. First, there are going to be visions that are more consciously conceived, right? These are ideological visions. These are religious visions. These are social ideals that prominent people in the society will promote 
will try and create organizations to work toward. These are the things where we will have political and factional conflicts and, you know, the norms of censorship or the goals that you have to invoke in order to get funding or social prestige are going to change. This is kind of the, the top level, right? The, the Maybe the corrupt form of this is the so-called discourse. Basically, the kind of social goals that are conscious for us. Then there's the second group. We could call them maybe the logic of social forms or the logic of institutions even. And here I'm talking about things like the logic of capital, right? So we have a society that is industrial, it is legible, it is focused on markets of labor driven by wages, it's embodied in corporations and law and nation states and agreements and contracts. And you have to adjust your life in significant ways down to the level of preferences and dreams that you have, how you set up families, how you relate to other people, your life becomes subsumed into this model, right, of an of an industrial, legible society of capital. And so you have clearly a logic there that is conditioning society, but it's not the same thing as the like top level conscious worldview stuff. It's this logic that is real, uh, that affects us, that's systemic, but it's imbued, it's sort of implicit in the modes of life that exist in the society. Yeah, so so this is interesting. If I can just rephrase what you're talking about there, we're talking about this sort of social infrastructure. There's all of these systems that we build up for aggregating and negotiating between our individual preferences and our individual efforts to kind of synthesize them into an overall overall direction. And And some of those are kind of like the established power structure. Some of those are things like what you're saying with the market, with discourse, et cetera, with, yeah, all, all our cultural forms, how we organize our lives. Basically, what are the rails that we're on? And, and we're kind of the, the individuality, the individual kind of uh, heroic impulse f- creates this force, but then there's rails that society provides of where that force is allowed to push something. Yeah. And it's not always where you think it is, right? That's the important thing. You can end up 50 years down the road going to a completely different stop, so to speak, than you thought you were. Yeah. I think a key part here is that liberalism, as you know, as described by Jan and Mill and etc., it doesn't provide an answer for how to balance between that social infrastructure and the the kind of unleashing of the individuals it gives a case for why you should unleash the individuals but that's only one half of the logic right the other half of the logic is okay you've got a bunch of these unleashed aristocratic individuals how are we going to form them into a society where they're able to cooperate because if you have all these people pushing in their own direction you you've got one guy building rockets and you've got another guy building an army and you've got another guy you know doing philosophy and and another guy setting up some kind of senate or something like you've got these different things going on in society ideally they're sort of these specializations each individual is kind of going deep into some particular project that they are pursuing but these projects if they don't have some system of coordination these projects are going to conflict they're going to come come to these places where they fight you're going to get the two guys who are building armies they're going to end up fighting each other you know the the one who wants to 
build this huge industrial empire is going to run into environmental problems. So there's, there's all these different ways that a bunch of separated actors in society are going to end up conflicting with each other. I mean, this is sort of an obvious point, but but it just has to be put in concretes here. And then what you need is systems of boundaries. You need to set up what are the boundaries, you need to negotiate what are the boundaries, what are the rules, what are the rails that we're on that allow us to do our efforts without immediately killing each other or stealing each other's stuff or whatever. That system of rails and, and rules produces all this social infrastructure. We build all the social infrastructure, which is how we interact with each other, all the rules and so on. But then that social infrastructure itself is A, necessary, and B, the source of the problem when you have everything, when everything's getting locked down. Like when you have these sort of late empire modes, like what we have now or what they had in the Qing dynasty, you've got too much binding in the social infrastructure. There's too much going on there and no one's able to do anything. There's too, it's overbalanced. There's, there's not enough kind of fundamental energy and too much kind of safety, right? And, and so there's that tension between those two things, but you need both. So liberalism as put forth here is actually incomplete because it's not giving us the logic for how we balance between you know, the fundamental energy and the synthesis of the fundamental energy with these uh, social forms. So again, I think there's something missing there. I think we ought to dig into that. The way that liberalism solves this issue or tries to solve the issue, and I'd say part of what makes it, as I said earlier, an anti-decadent movement, is that liberalism's answer is actually having that conflict in society is fine on the overall level. If you have people who are not afraid to venture out into conflict, both in terms of engaging intellectually with their opponents, with doing projects that are unpopular, but which might work anyway, by creating art or culture that is not at first well received, and you know the people who receive it pushing back and having to actually flesh out why they despise this thing, that conflict actually creates spirited people and people who are responsive to things that are going on around them. People who would see the British Empire, for example, tromping across Asia and would be able to react to it and build up the country in China, in Jan's case, in a way that could actually resist it. So, okay, there is, there is clearly, a, you know, because every society has some base level of conflict. Some of them tolerate less, some of them tolerate more. But in any society, you get to a level of conflict where the whole thing actually just starts to break down. And, you know, an example of this is I talked earlier about these sort of two levels of logic, the conscious and sort of unconscious systematic or systemic logic. That top level is often part of what's going into social control mechanisms, right? So these are the mechanisms that actually regulate discourse they're the laws that we follow. You know, some of these are formally expressed in law. Some of them are informal. They're in the customs of power. You know, who gets censored or who gets deplatformed. These are all things that exist in any society. But in a society that is so conflict-ridden that the average person is actually now just concerned with preserving their little patch that they've managed to eke out of power stability, all your effort is going to go into 
the base, you know, purging your enemies, it's going to go into maintaining the social control mechanisms. And it might do that far past when they have anything to offer, right? They could just be outdated or wrong or based on lies. But you don't now have any incentive to update them, because you are actually now so involved in conflict, that survival, their survival the kind of social equivalent of just living in like a wasteland where you're eking out crops every year to survive the next winter. These are not forms of life which are conducive to anything, you know, any of these glorious visions that are animating the thing to begin with, right? And that's why liberalism ended up having to iterate, right? It did this in the 20th century and there were different forms, you know. Every Western society has developed norms around where these freedoms are considered to have failure modes, ways that you are not allowed to exercise them because they end up undermining the thing as a whole. Yeah, so that, that this gets to this logic of like, you know, obviously we can't have the the sort of state of nature in the Hobbesian sense where everyone is freed from all social constraint and, you know, you're just eking out your existence. I think something interesting there is we should dissolve this distinction between or dissolve the sort of uni-dimensional view of social constraint. So what you want is lots of constraint on the fragile dimensions of society, sorry, fragile and important dimensions of society, and very little constraint on the anti-fragile dimensions of society. So an anti-fragile dimension is something like, you know, who can come up with this new technology that's basically mostly upside or who can build this this machinery that's mostly upside, things like that, where you need a lot of exploration, you need a, a lot of competition, and the competition is is sort of for these positive wins. And then the fragile dimensions are things like, well, if this particular thing gets disrupted, suddenly a whole bunch of stuff breaks because a lot of stuff was depending on that being a certain way. So that's like you know your power grid or your your train networks or your road system you actually want to maintain a fairly robust and uniform paradigm there. Otherwise, the, the, the protocol for binding society together that it represents starts to break down, or the internet is another one, right? You know, you don't want a lot of innovation at the protocol level once you have a lot of stuff built on top of the protocol. Let's put it that way. So I just want to dissolve it into, the, into these multiple dimensions because you actually want you know, if we're back to the unidimensional model, you actually want things a little bit more liberated than you would think was necessary or optimal because of the training effect. You want people to be dealing a little bit more with fundamental reality, a little bit more with with like more freedom than they actually need because you want them to be training themselves in how to deal with freedom. Well, and you also want to unleash the contrarians, right? You want people to actually have social sanction not in the immediate sense, because obviously, you know, the nature of being a contrarian is that most people will oppose what you're doing. It's mandated of heaven, right? Rebellion is evil unless you win. And kind of you want that like on the individual level where, okay, your crazy new electrical grid idea is uh, a rebellion, but we're going to give you a chance to prove you have the mandate of heaven. Boy, I, I mean, again, you give people the chance on the anti-fragile dimensions. And so there's this, this, there's this judgment that has to be made, right? Which is which dimension dimensions are actually fragile, which dimensions are actually anti-fragile. Um, and so that's part of the judgment that I think is not well discussed within the liberal paradigm. That, that's something that can go into informing like this, 
I think the thing we're driving at with this conversation is there's this higher logic to liberalism that we have to fill out or higher logic to sort of what we might call the post-liberal synthesis, as we have called it, which is taking these ideas from liberalism and, and incorporating them back into a more holistic social paradigm. But what we're driving at is this idea of the higher logic that gives the individuals the teleology and also defines when you want to be limiting things and when you want to be unleashing and liberating things, where, where to make those, those adjustments. I, I like the split that we've introduced into how we are talking about restrictions, social norms. So, okay, these don't exist in a vacuum. They're here in order to create certain kinds of individuals. Maybe we should talk a little about what those are. What I like about actually reading the the radicals and the liberals of the 19th century is I think it pretty much destroys this mythos of liberalism as a negative project, right? You're just breaking apart restraints on liberty or on freedom. You read someone like Adam Smith, for example, the way he talked about landlords. He considered landlords to essentially be this corrupt class, a parasite on society. He says they love to reap where they never sowed. They demand a rent even for the natural produce of the earth. He is a radical in the sense of thinking that political action is necessary in order to break the power of the landlord class, right? And obviously later ideas like Georgism sort of expand this into ideas about law and social norms about how land is governed. But, you know, the project here is Smith is looking at, okay, where are people actually producing things? They're producing things in in industry, obviously, you know, it's in the Industrial Revolution, but industry is not as developed in his time as it is, it is now. But people who are actually working are the ones who are producing things. And people who happen to own natural endowments like land, while well, they have wealth. And, you know, maybe we could even say that that wealth can be governed well in some sense, but we should not say that it is productive labor in the same sense that working on the factory line was. And then you have Mill. He's looking at things like freedom of speech and publishing as actually creating individuals who are using their abilities in a positive way. The idea of British liberalism is to create individual people in society who actually have the power to act according to their abilities. And again, this might seem like a mundane idea, but liberalism was really aware of the way that social custom and the way that material circumstance prevents individuals from actually doing that, right? And when you have people like Napoleon going across Europe, one of the main things he's he's doing is kind of abolishing some of these older control mechanisms. He's also introducing new ones. But the implicit project here is that we are going to introduce a system of law and culture where all of these people now under our rule are going to actually have a sense that they must contribute to the society. You cannot just kind of try to maintain stasis. And we are also going to give them the all the abilities, right? All the material and social abilities necessary that they can basically self-realize in, in doing this. Um, you know, you're creating a type of population here. So I, I, what I find interesting here is, again, it's requiring this complex judgment of which 
control systems you're tearing down and which ones you're leaving in place and which ones you're building up with you know what we're talking about with napoleon basically and 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 the extended class of things there so like what work is liberalism actually doing there liberalism sort of says oh yeah we should tear down some of these control mechanisms that are actually just holding people back unleash the individual unleash the rational mind etc but it, but it's it's underspecified it's not giving you which things need to be torn down and it, and i think it can't what things in society are the ones that are important and which ones are the ones that are overextended and uh, actually would be better torn down is a matter of very complex taste taste in social engineering taste in leadership etc and that's not something that can be sort of determined by formula and again this is one of these failure modes of liberalism is that it tries to or at least people try to project these these formulas onto it it's like oh well if we just have enough voting or if we just have enough experts or if we just have enough of this capitalistic control mechanism or these algorithms or whatever you have these these non-human non-judgment ways of making judgments and um and and people try to push off these hard decisions onto those mechanisms, but that doesn't really work. You actually do need the the complex discerning taste of, of someone who's re-engineering things. And of course, they need to have the power to do that. And once they have the power, they're, they're not going to be selected necessarily for their taste. So it's it just, it, you kind of end up back at this hard problem of how do you build a powerful vanguard that has good taste in social uh, social engineering? That's sort of like the er problem, like to actually do liberalism at all, you need or to do liberal reform specifically, liberal reform of these stagnant empires. That need Things need to be broken down and, and re-engineered to actually do that. You need a powerful vanguard with good taste. How do you actually get that? That's the fundamental problem. And maybe I think maybe where liberalism starts to try to answer that is it says, well, that vanguard itself needs to be formed of these kind of liberally educated individuals. It's it's the same problem as voting, right? If if, if a population is basically just socialized out of thinking in, in terms of ends or goods or missions or anything like that, you're still probably going to have them come up, but they're going to kind of come up in this very sporadic way, probably informed by conflict and with a lot of lying going on because you're going to have to take the thing you want to do and kind of present it as something other than a unifying good, right? This, I think, just introduces lying into the political order. And I think this is extremely destructive. So I think I think it's sort of worth, I mean, we should have done this earlier, but it's worth doing a bit of abstraction smashing in this whole this whole discussion. Like, again, back to what I was saying, like you need this powerful vanguard you know, there's all these mechanisms by which you can sort of try to get that. But really, the fundamental question is, who is in charge and what do they want? Right. And how do you build such an association that can become in charge? And what what's it going to want? Like this problem is not one of political systems. Political systems are fake. They 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 aren't real. They aren't addressing the, the real thing. But, uh, or specifically, the thing that's fake about political systems is the implication that you have a choice of political system and that the character of the people in charge descends from the political system rather than the other way around. Rather, what you have is you have a clique that gains power by some means. In any society, you have some clique that has gained power or is gaining power. And those are specific people 
They have specific things that they want. They have specific visions. They have specific skills in the area of taste, of coordination, etc. They are going to build a certain a political system under them that serves their needs for what they their vision of what they want for society. And, and so this is the fundamental ground that we cannot forget. Like the fundamental thing is you always just need some actual powerful bunch of people in charge deciding where to steer society. And I'm not saying this as like this is a political system. I'm saying this is like the fundamental fact that precedes political systems. And I think liberalism then in that context, it has to be understood as like a an idea auditioning to be picked up by such a clique that liberating the individual from these systems of over control is a good idea. And and but the actual details, the actual impl- implementation, the actual political force is coming from somewhere else. So I'm trying to break through this really frustrating aspect of this discourse of political systems or discourse of political ideas, which is where people take it as this sort of bloodless technocratic thing, like view from nowhere, where you can kind of design the ultimate political system and then somehow implement it. And then somehow it will it will go and produce the kind of society you want without without any actual powerful vanguard taking over society and steering it where it wants to go. It's deus ex machina theory, right? It's when you solve all the world's problems over lunch in undergrad or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's like, oh, we need a political system that does this. It's like, what? Well, I mean, no, it's it's narrower than that. It's narrower than that. Solving the world's political problems, uh, uh, you know, over lunch in, in undergrad, that's a perfectly valid thing to do, right? Like young people, they decide, well, maybe we could be this vanguard that's going to take over society. What would we do, right? That's a valid question. I think, I think... What happens, though, is in our society, and perhaps a lot of the time, people get stuck in this idea of political systems where it's like, we're not going to take in charge. That's that's dirty. You know, we don't touch that problem. We're going to recommend a political system that society, you know, I'm waving my hands here. Society is going to adopt this political system that that is somehow going to solve the problems. We're not going to have to actually you know, get in there and get our hands dirty or actually do anything. That's, I think, where the mistake is. And I think that's a particular assumption that has become entrenched in how we think about politics. Anyways, but when we when we unwind that assumption, we come back to liberalism essentially as this admonition to these powerful vanguards who are remaking society to consider the importance of unleashing many individuals and training up many individuals. It's sort of this vision of, hey, if you had a lot of power, here's one of the things you might do with it. Give everyone a lot of power so that we can do lots of awesome things together. You know, obviously what I'm describing there is rather incomplete. Maybe we can go and flesh out the details, but I think this is an important piece of its grounding. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.